Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of British produce and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome and thanks for tuning into the show which celebrates the best food and drink found on our doorsteps. On this episode, we are speaking to chef and industry legend Mark Hicks, MBE. Unfortunately, coronavirus has devastated Mark's restaurant empire, but he's slowly rebuilding it with his Dorset fish truck and his oyster and fish house, which he bought back from the administrators. Fergus the Forager is here to talk about hogweed, but first, here's an update from the food world. A rare success story of lockdown, the team behind Top Cuvée quickly pivoted when they were forced to close their doors at the Highbury restaurant back in March. They launched the very clever Shop Cuvée, delivering natural wines nationwide and following its staggering success, have since turned it into a physical location. They've now launched a meal delivery service, Take Cuvée, promising restaurant quality dinners at home. The menu created by head chef Will Blank will change daily and be available for delivery across London. All you need to do is reheat the food at home and enjoy. You'll also get access to a special Top Cuvée Spotify playlist so you can really bring the restaurant vibes to you. Next up, breakfast in bed? Is there anything better? A chance to linger in the cosiest place in your home, reading the paper or a good book and sipping coffee from your favourite mug. I was delighted to find out that the Bakery Gales has a breakfast in bed hamper for £30. The bundle includes a croissant, cinnamon bun, sourdough, quicks, whey, butter, marmalade, orange juice and ground coffee. Everything you'd ever want to start your weekend off perfectly. And lastly, Country Estates Hotel and Restaurant The Newt in Somerset have launched a cider box. Having spoken to cider expert Gabe Cook in last month's show, the box of four ciders really appealed to me. It also comes with a free month subscription to their cider club. Now that would be a lovely Christmas gift. So those are your three foodie things on your doorstep this week. And now I'm joined by Mark Hicks. Some of our chat on coronavirus is a little out of date as I caught up with Mark a few weeks before this month-long lockdown we're in now. My guest today is one of the greats of British food. He's a celebrated chef, restaurateur and food writer known for his original take on British gastronomy. He has unrivaled food knowledge of local fish and seafood, has a whopping 12 cookbooks to his name and even received an MBE in 2017 for his services to hospitality. It's no less than Chef Mark Hicks. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining me. How are you? Hi there. Good, thank you. Good. Good. Are you, where are you at the moment? Down in Dorset? Uh, I've just finished on the fish truck and I've just come home. So there's a uh, clear reception, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, no, you sound, you sound good. <laughs> so, Mark, obviously, it's been a very turbulent time for everyone in the hospitality industry this, um, this year and especially for you. Would you like to just um, let everyone know kind of what's been happening with you and, um, yeah, and and all of that? Yeah, well, up until sort of March time, you know, it was kind of business as usual. And then I was supposed to meet my now ex-business partner and he cancelled the meeting. Then I called him and he sort of broke the news that his senior board uh, have decided that, you know, we should put the business into administration, which was the London restaurants, the Tram Shed, the Chop House, Hicks Soho and Hicks to Bankside and the Oyster and Fish House down in Dorset. So initially I thought, you know, 
oh dear, I won't swear on the, <laughs> like I did on that morning show. And then I suddenly thought to myself, oh, maybe this is an opportunity uh, because I've been trying to sort of escape and do my own thing again, you know, actually on my own without partners for the last couple of years. So, yeah, I, I sort of had to rethink about it all and, you know, thought this is a great opportunity. But the next step was really, uh, at this point, I could have brought back some of the London restaurants from the administrators uh, and I had a couple offers accepted and I sort of held fire because I really wanted to do the, the oyster and fish house down in Nime. So I, I put an offer in and I got outbid and my next door neighbour and landlord, who I've known since I was a kid, uh, sort of did his best to put the potential buyers who had outbid me off. And successfully they kind of dropped out and I managed to get the fish house back for 15 grand from the administrators. So that was a good thing. And then all I had to do really was to sort of open it back up, you know, have a good clean up and get all the staff back on board. And we opened at the end of July. Uh, but previous to that, in sort of April time, I was on eBay thinking, well, okay, what am I going to do? Maybe I should buy a food truck because if it all goes wrong, at least I can travel around and serve food of some description to the general public. So I bought this truck on eBay. I won the bid and went to London and collected it, brought it back down to Dorset. It's a lovely old American Chevrolet converted ambulance. And uh, it was all kitted out inside for cooking and stuff. But what I thought was, you know, the local fishermen have been having a bit of a hard time because there was no restaurants, no shops open no hotels and they had nowhere to sell their fish because the market in Brixham and Plymouth were, you know, pretty sort of dead really. So that was my thought and I thought, okay, well maybe I should just buy direct from them, sell wet fish, you know, so that the locals can actually buy, you know, nice fresh fish again. So I was helping out both the fishermen and, you know, the local fish lovers. So I started doing that three days a week, well more than that actually, initially. And, uh, you know, it was a big success. Okay, I wasn't making loads of money, but at least I was earning some money. <laughs> that was my only kind of form of revenue, really. And the first week, uh, I got my old head chef from the fish house back, and I said, look, I'm not going to pay you a wage, but we'll split the profit at the end of the week. And we both went home with 140 quid in our pockets. <laughs> so it was a kind of, you know, it's quite satisfying because at least I was earning something and Jezza was also earning something so we sort of made it work and the profits are up a little bit everyone was happy fishermen were happy we were happy and the, the general public were happy so that, that's still going the fish truck I just do it three days a week at Felicity's farm shop in Morecambe Lake and then when I got the restaurant back I sort of kept that going as well the fish truck as well as reopening back in July the 27th and from the day we opened you know thankfully we've been fully booked because there's lots of people from London that are, you know, still down here really that, you know, either aren't going back to work or are working from home. And a lot of them, you know, have got no intentions of going back to work in London, you know, until the new year. So there's a lot of business still down here and people can't get a reservation in the restaurant. So it's been a good few months for us down here. Unfortunately, it's not the case in London with all these new restrictions 
Yeah, it's really tricky, really tricky in London. Um, the curfew is, yeah, another nail in the coffin, I think. Um, it is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. At least you've got a terrace down, down near you, which is good. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we've been really fortunate down here. Sadly, London, there's going to be a lot of casualties, you know, I sort of hear by the week that, you know, especially now that, you know, restaurants aren't going to bother reopening, they're just going to close because there's just not enough business for them. Exactly. It's um, more expensive to keep your restaurant open than, than closed at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, so it's a, it's a really tricky one. Those jobs on the line, you know, there's millions of jobs in hospitality. And I think although the government sort of helped us all out in the beginning, it's now sort of turned a bit of a circle, really, where there's no more furlough anymore, restaurateurs... Hoteliers are going to have to subsidise, you know, staff not being at work or make them redundant, which isn't a happy thing. Well, yeah, let's let's focus on the positives today with um, your restaurant reopening in July, which is really exciting, and your fish truck. So has the local response been really positive then to the fish truck? Yeah, that's really good. And, I, you know, there's lots of regulars that have been coming to the restaurant and there's lots of locals and it's driving a bit of business to the farm shop and vice versa. So Felicity at the farm shop's really happy and I'm happy and it's, you know, it's a good little spot there on the A35, uh, people passing by, picking up fish if they're on the way to Devon or Cornwall or going back to London or wherever. Oh, OK, because I thought you moved the fish truck around, but it's just it's just stationed in that farm shop, yeah. is it? Yeah, just there at the moment. I did take it down to Plymouth a few weeks back uh, there was a little seafood festival in the Barbican there. So I was just there the weekend. But I think, you know, with it being in the same spot, uh, people know when I'm there and where I am. So it kind of worked out really well. Yeah. And um, seafood-wise, sort of what's on offer to the locals then? What, um, what well, kind of stuff are you selling? I, I only buy, I don't buy any second-hand fish you know from any uh, fish merchants I, I literally buy directly from four fishermen in Lyme Regis that's shellfish and you know lobsters crabs wet fish and then I buy oysters again locally from Portland and pool uh, also live cockles and clams so yeah I'm sort of supporting those local fishermen and when when the weather's bad I've got a friend in Plymouth who has a couple of boats so when we can't fish out of Lyon, then, you know, they can fish out of Plymouth. So I've got a sort of backup supply. And also they're sort of different species they land down there. So there's he has pelagic boats, which land sardines, mackerel and fresh anchovies, uh, which are quite a rarity down here. So I've been playing around a lot with the fresh anchovies because, you know, when you say anchovies to customers, they just automatically think of, you know, canned anchovies or pickled anchovies. So we've had them on the menu, you know, fresh, deep fried. I've been curing them. I've been smoking them. And quite a nice surprise for customers to be eating fresh West Country anchovies. Definitely. I, I don't see those uh, on the menu that much, um, which is a shame. Luckily, Lewis from Sound Seafood uh, is going some my way. And I've been working along with Call for Fish, uh, which is helping to support uh, local fishermen and encouraging people to buy uh, fresh fish again, you know, in a confident way. We've done a few videos cooking fish very simply 
so just to put a bit of confidence back in people cooking fresh fish again. Definitely, because I think people are sometimes scared to cook fish and to stick to what they know. Um, but there's so much sort of variety out there. So what would be your uh, kind of tips to people out there who are not quite sure what to do with fresh fish? Well, I, I think a lot of people buy fish fillets thinking it's easier. Um, but potentially fish fillets can be more tricky to cook because you're, you're sort of pan frying them or whatever. And that whole pan frying thing, you know, people at home tend not to get their frying pans hot enough to seal the fish and it ends up sticking and falling apart. And I always like to sort of just roast my fish on the bone. Uh, it's, you know, you get a much better flavour. It's much easier and you can do all sorts of things with marinades and just simple oil and rosemary or garlic or whatever. And you tend to get a much better result and it's much less skillful, I would say, really cooking fresh fish just simply roasted. Yeah. So encouraging people to just buy the whole fish and, and just... Yeah, or even going back to old-fashioned poaching, a nice piece of fish just gently poached, not overcooked, you know, is also a great way to eat fresh fish and seafood. Definitely. And uh, like kind of vegetables, there's sort of seasons of fish as well. So could you talk to us a little bit about um, fish and how it works seasonally and, and what kind of um, fish we might be looking at at the moment? Yeah, so back about 10 years ago, I think it was, the Blue Marine Foundation made Lime Bay into uh, the first marine reserve in the UK, uh, which meant that trawlers couldn't uh, come, you know, close inshore and start uh, messing up the seabed. And that's worked really well, you know. I think there was a bit of reaction to begin with, but all the local fishermen are playing by the rules and, you know, fishing seasonally. So, for example, the scallop divers can fish sort of between uh, the Dorset coast and Devon in and out of season, uh, depending it sort of moves accordingly. Uh, so really all the fishermen, you know, are having a great time and the, the sea is recovering some of the old stocks, you know, because at one point when there was heavy trawling going on, you know, a lot of the fish species would disappear, but we can catch cod, bass, pollock, and all those sort of fairly common species. And what I try, try and do as well is also get second or third division fish from the local fishermen that people wouldn't ordinarily cook, like, say, huss, ray, uh, pouting, which is one of those fish that uh, fishermen normally either throw back or use in their lobster pots. So I, I take fish like that off of them and take the good bit of fillet off and then give them back the heads and the bones to put in their lobster pots. So everyone... Everyone wins. Yeah, exactly. Nothing's going to waste. I, I think this whole thing that's been going on, you know, with no no restaurants open and suddenly they're open and suddenly we're almost back to square one. You know, the, the whole the whole thing is not just staff in hospitality, but people to actually supply the hospitality industry. You know, from farmers to fishermen, uh, producers, cheesemakers. Uh, and that whole chain, you know, had suffered quite badly because there was nowhere to sell their produce to. I know. Um, so that's really nice that you're you're working with them directly and, and getting people incredible 
fish and seafood. Yeah, I think I guess the positive if there is one of coronavirus is that people I think are much more aware of, you know, what's on their plate and where it's coming from. And a lot of people are getting out there and talking to suppliers um, to get best produce and really kind of support these people who are struggling at the moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, it's it's always been a hard, you know, sell and, you know, some people can't afford to buy locally from farm shops. But I've seen quite a big turn now where people are really conscious about buying and supporting local businesses, you know, farms and uh, fishermen. So I think, you know, everyone's really thinking hard about where their food comes from. Definitely. Um, and as well as uh, incredible seafood um, on the Dorset coast where you are, is there anything else in Dorset that you think is worth really shouting about? Are there any particular cheeses? Or um, I know that you have some local maybe wines and beers from the area as well on your list. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're really lucky down here. I mean, I was brought up down here and sort of food. I just remember things like Dorset Blue Vinny and obviously cheddar and that sort of stuff. But I think the cheeses in the southwest now you know I, I can do a really fantastic cheese board that matches up against any european or international cheese board you know we've got some great cheese producers down here just making great cheeses because i, I think back in the old days farmers dairy farmers especially would sell their milk sometimes not for much money but now they're diversifying and making butter and yogurt and really great cheeses so it's a good example of you know having one product and making it into something completely different. And likewise with drinks producers, my friends at Black Cow Vodka, one of the partners, Jason Barber, his family are really big cheddar cheese producers. And a few years back, they decided to make vodka out of the whey that normally goes down the drain. And they ferment that into like a beer and distill it into Black Cow Vodka. Uh, so that's one of the really great producers. And you've got people like Julian Templey, who traditionally was a cider maker and he's making great cider brandy and uh, cider aperitifs. And we've got really, you know, fantastic sparkling wine producers around here, Castlewood and Lion Bay Winery, Langham Estate, Furley Estate. You know, there's some within about 10 miles, you know, we've got half a dozen lovely wine producers and, you know, predominantly sparkling, but, some of them do make very good still wines. Rob Corbett from Castlewood made Robin Hudson from the Pig Hotel and myself. Uh, he dedicated one small vineyard to us and made a great still white wine, which we called Devon Minnow because Robin is my fishing buddy and Devon Minnow is an old fashioned fishing lure. So we did a really nice drawing on the label and so we're selling the Devon Minnow at the pigs and in my restaurant. <laughs> That's such a lovely story. Uh, so you, yeah, I know you've always been quite into fishing yourself. Uh, when did you start doing that? Well, I started as a kid, you know, just sort of sea fishing. Uh, I used to sort of hang around in the harbour and catch a few mackerel. Then occasionally I'd go out on boats with my dad's friends and catching things like pollock and sea bass. And then sort of later in life, I got into fly fishing you know, for salmon and sea trout and trout and pike, uh, which is a bit more of a sophisticated form of fishing. So I'm I'm sort of blessed down here. Really. I've got a couple of good rivers mm. where I can fish for sea trout and salmon. And I've also got the sea. I've got a boat in the harbour 
unfortunately I suddenly got busy when the fishing restrictions were lifted and uh, not been not been able to get out on the boat much but business comes first yeah yeah I'm sure you'll get out soon yeah I was up in Scotland recently um and there was a spate river and yeah lots of lots of salmon actually up there which was nice yeah well I think with the fishing restrictions a lot of the salmon you know I think Scotland's had its best year for salmon and sea trout because they're they're not you know the, the the netters aren't catching them out to sea preventing them from coming up the rivers so I think with those relaxed fishing laws um and the restrictions and it's enabled a lot of salmon to come back up the rivers yeah so. which is really good and there was a ton of crab and lobsters and scallops as well um again because I think with fishing um there's just not that kind of commercial um the boats out there so um so the pots I was up there cooking cooking for a family they came back every day with just tons and tons of it um yeah yeah because the yeah. boats aren't there so um yeah that was really nice but obviously the boats aren't there then um there's not the demand in the restaurants and then yeah obviously it's a, a yeah and I think you know just the small time fishermen especially down here you know I quite often buy most you know nearly all of their catch because we're so busy in the restaurant that we can we can use it all so it saves them selling it to the market we, we've all got licenses where we can buy and sell direct and they know exactly where their fish is going to end up where you know a lot of the time when the minute they take it to the market it could end up anywhere so it's it's a nice story and the fishermen come up and have a glass of beer or cider with me after they've dropped off their fish so everyone's happy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, just going on to the way that I feel like you've cooked food for quite a while, I always think that you just take really great produce and you just cook it really well. Is that something that um, you kind of knew you always wanted to do? Is, was that, has it always been your food philosophy? Yeah, I think when you do have great product and great produce, you don't need to do too much to it, you know, especially fish. You know, you can't beat a piece of turbot or any fish come to that cooked, you know, really simply on the bone. You know, we go out and forage um, different sea vegetables like sea aster and sea purslane and that kind of stuff. And, you know, we just simply garnish it. We have a sort of mixed grilled fish permanently on the menu where we can utilise three different types of fish. It might be turbot, mackerel and pollock, for example, and you get just a nice sharing plate between two people and that's proved to be the most popular dish on the menu because you get the opportunity to try three different types of fish. I think people appreciate fish and meat being cooked very simply so that it shows their sort of true flavours and textures. Quite often, you know, people are tempted to mess around with uh, meat and fish and even vegetables and you end up not really tasting, you know, the main ingredient. Uh, so I've, I've always had this hard and fast rule not to have any more than three ingredients on the plate with the main ingredient really the sort of showcase. Yeah, no, it makes sense when you have such great produce. And are there any particular ingredients, um, I'm kind of thinking more fish here, but anything that you think is really underused that we can find in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I, I use a lot of cockles. So Pete Miles from Dorset Shellfish. Uh, so we get the Brown Sea Island native and... Uh, rock oysters from them but there's also very good cockle and clam beds there so when the cockles are available we just do freshly steamed cockles which are you know half the price of clams 
and people are quite surprised because they're used to cockles being in little polystyrene tubs with vinegar on and being all gritty. Uh, but when you steam a fresh cockle, it's fantastic, better than clams in my mind because they're nice and plump. And they also make a great spaghetti vongolais or just simply eaten with some malt vinegar. So I'd, I love cooking that sort of fish. And some of those third division fish like whiting, pouting, gurnard, which aren't the obvious fish that people target also make great eating and I, I think also utilizing all of the, the bones and things you know you can get a second meal you know in the form of a fish soup or in, with shellfish a sort of beast style soup or an Asian broth so I, I think it's important to utilize every single bit of fish because you know if you go to a supermarket you just get prime cuts of fish and you wonder what the hell happens to the rest of it so that is part and parcel of why we've got huge waste in this country. Yeah, definitely. They sound really good. And I think hopefully, I mean, I've seen a bit of a renaissance when it comes to meat and the cheeks and oxtail and things like that. I think hopefully fish is the next one on the agenda for people to really um, understand how to use in the whole fish. Yeah, absolutely. Those cheaper cuts of meat, you know, like you said, the, the offal and the cheeks and the flank, much better flavour, much more flexibility, what you can do with it, braising it and casseroles and hot pots and that sort of stuff. And also, you know, it's, it's great value and people don't need to spend lots of money on prime cuts. Brilliant. Um, well, lastly, I would love to ask you what your favourite British seasonal ingredient is at the moment, just to give us all a bit of inspiration on um, yeah, eating the seasons. Yeah, so I've got a bit of a garden going on just down in my sort of fairly newly built house and it was on a bit of an unusable slope so I I sort of landscaped it with sleepers and I've got salads which grow all year round, lots of unusual herbs, lemon verbena for tea, mm, lemon balm. I've got Jerusalem artichokes which I'm about to dig and I've even planted a little mini vineyard. Rob Corbett from Castlewood gave me some uh, Solaris vines and um they're sort of sweet grapes that he uses to balance up so i've got about 10 vines out there which haven't fruited this year but they will next year and you know i I think just people have started growing vegetables again and i think gardening at home if you've got a garden is the best way to sort of see seasonal ingredients uh i've just got a lot of green tomatoes that didn't quite ripen which i'm going to make into chutney or even deep fried green tomatoes in a light batter but also there's some great mushrooms around at the moment and you know all the great root vegetables and those leafy greens black cabbage i've got kale i've got sprouting broccoli growing Uh, so all of that sort of stuff you know we're done with the peas and the broad beans and runner beans now Uh, so it's time to sort of look forward to the root vegetables and those winter winter leaves and people think that salad leaves are just for the summer but there's some great hardy and robust leaves you can grow in the winter time you know like in the chicory family even rocket you can get growing all year around as long as you keep harvesting it and feeding it i even made some i was inundated with nettles when i was redoing my garden so i made a sort of homemade nettle tea in a big water butt and you just siphon that off and use that as a a natural garden fertilizer i love cooking with nettles anyway i think they've got great flavor Um... yeah and also seaweed seaweed's the thing that all of our seaweeds on the on the coast are all completely edible in some form. In Japan, they use it as a big part of their diet, whether it's kelp 
or lava or that sort of seaweed and we're inundated with seaweed which is free you know which you can harvest on the beach and a lot of it i put that on my garden as well puts lots of iron and minerals into the into the soil yeah yeah seaweed isn't one one of those other underused ingredients but definitely gaining some traction i think um so the dulse and um all of that's becoming yeah, more apparent, I think, on menus and in people's homes. Yeah, and it's all abundant on our seashores. I know, yeah. <laughs> um, perfect. Well, it's really lovely to speak to you, Mark. Thank you so much for coming. And you can- Before we end today's show, we'll be hearing from Fergus Drennan, a.k.a. Fergus the Forager. He's a wild food experimentalist, educator, and runs regular immersive foraging courses. It is the season for one of my favourite plants because it's so versatile, and that's common hogweed, Heraclium spondylium. Heraclium meaning, well, from Heracles, so meaning strength and healing, which is not surprising really because hogweed was used in the original borscht soup, that lacto-fermented soup that has now come to be made with beetroot. But lacto-fermented products are very good for your gut health and then your general health and strength. So that's Heraclium and Sphondylium. That comes from vertebrae because the central stem is in sections, a bit like, you know, vertebrae in a sense. So it's a member of the carrot family. And... Let's start with what's in season now. So what's in season really from September through to December really is the wonderful seeds. Now, as a member of the carrot family, the flowers and then the seed pods are formed in kind of umbels. And these are dense clusters that you will see now before all the wind blows them away of flattened, aromatic, papery seeds. The aroma is kind of of cardamom and oranges. It's quite complex. And actually, that delightful complexity allows you to go two ways. You can go both sweet and savoury. So using those seeds, you can grind them up. I, I love to put them in pakoras, spicy pakoras. But also you could infuse them into um, alcohol, so vodka with some sugar, and then use that in various cocktails and stuff. Strangely, at that point, it tastes like and smells like butterscotch angel delight, utterly bizarre. Also, you can use them. Something I've made is a ginger cake where you don't put any ginger in at all, but you just replace the ginger with ground up hogweed seeds and it tastes just the same as ginger cake. It's pretty amazing. So get the seeds before the wind blows them all the way. But thinking about that plant throughout the year, once we get into the spring, you've got the gorgeous shoots coming through as they kind of un- unfurl. They can be the, the stem can be as thick as your kind of little finger. And when, when it's, I don't know, when it's about two to kind of six inches long, well, maybe four, four to kind of eight inches long, you can just kind of cook it like you would asparagus or blend it up, make it into a puree soup. It tastes more like celery at that point than celery, which is kind of strange. I would say you do need to be careful that like giant hogweed, which you might have heard of, this also has furanocumarins in there, which if you get that sap in which they're in on your skin and then you expose it to, to sunlight, bright sunlight worse, but you know, even on a cloudy day, you can get photodermatitis. So 
So take precautions, wear, wear gloves. So we can do other things with those stems. Later on, what I really love to do, and again, all gloved up, because you've got to be careful. And this works with other um, fibrous plants as well. When the stems get too tough to use, you can drag out all those veins and you can deep fry them into little nests. It's probably the most chefy thing you will do <laughs> if you decide to do that. So there we are. That's a few ideas for using the wonderful plant giant hogweed all parts edible the root as well i haven't mentioned that because it's not so great the flowers i tend to not eat them although they are edible because they smell just like a men's urinal but great for pollinators in the summer you'll see soldier beetles and flies and hoverflies all over them but you know i think with the delicious stem in the spring the delicious seeds all the ways that you can use it it's definitely a plant to put in your top 20 of wild foods thanks fergus i've actually got some hogweed seeds drying that i picked on a walk yesterday and that ginger cake sounds incredible so i'm definitely going to give that one a try that's all for this episode if you enjoyed it i'd be so grateful if you could rate and review the podcast Next week, we're joined by Gregory Marshall, who's up in Scotland making the most incredible sea salt flakes. We're going to be getting technical, as this isn't your standard sodium chloride. Have a great week and see you next time.